0: Section 11 of Commentary on the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians by John Calvin. Translated by William Pringle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church and he is the saviour of the body therefore as the church is subject unto christ so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything husbands love your wives even as christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish submit yourselves god has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection and where love reigns mutual services will be rendered i do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community it is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn but as nothing is more irksome to the mind of man than this mutual subjection he directs us to the fear of christ who alone can subdue our fierceness that we may not refuse the yoke and can humble our pride that we may not be ashamed of serving our neighbours it does not much affect the sense whether we interpret the fear of christ passively thus let us submit to our neighbours because we fear christ or actively let us submit to them because the minds of all godly persons ought to be influenced by such fear under the reign of christ some greek manuscripts read the fear of god the change may have been introduced by some person who thought that the other phrase the fear of christ though by far the most appropriate sounded a little harsh wives submit yourselves he comes now to the various conditions of life, for, besides the universal bond of subjection, some are more closely bound to each other, according to their respective callings. The community at large is divided, as it were, into so many yokes, out of which arises mutual obligation. There is first the yoke of marriage between husband and wife, secondly the yoke which binds parents and children, and thirdly the yoke which connects masters and servants by this arrangement there are six different classes for each of whom paul lays down peculiar duties he begins with wives whom he enjoins to be subject to their husbands in the same manner as to christ as to the lord not that the authority is equal but wives cannot obey christ without yielding obedience to their husbands for the husband is the head of the wife this is the reason assigned why wives should be obedient Christ has appointed the same relation to exist between a husband and a wife, as between himself and his church. This comparison ought to produce a stronger impression on their minds than the mere declaration that such is the appointment of God. Two things are here stated. God has given to the husband authority over the wife, and a resemblance of this authority is found in Christ, who is the head of the church, as the husband is of the wife. And he is the saviour of the body. The pronoun he is supposed by some to refer to Christ, and by others to the husband. It applies more naturally, in my opinion, to Christ, but still with a view to the present subject. In this point, as well as in others, the resemblance ought to hold. As Christ rules over his church for her salvation, so nothing yields more advantage or comfort to the wife than to be subject to her husband. To refuse that subjection, by means of which they might be saved, is to choose destruction. But as the church is subject to Christ... The particle but may lead some to believe that the words, he is the saviour of the body, are intended to anticipate an objection. Christ has no doubt this peculiar claim that he is the saviour of the church. Nevertheless, let wives know that their husbands, though they cannot produce equal claims, have authority over them after the example of Christ. I prefer the former interpretation, for the argument derived from the word but does not appear to me to have much weight. Husbands, love your wives from husbands on the other hand the apostle requires that they cherish towards their wives no ordinary love for to them also he holds out the example of christ even as christ also loved the church if they are honoured to bear his image and to be in some measure his representatives they ought to resemble him also in the discharge of duty and gave himself for it this is intended to express the strong affection for which husbands ought to have for their wives, though he takes occasion immediately afterwards to commend the grace of Christ. Let husbands imitate Christ in this respect, that he scrupled not to die for his church. One peculiar consequence, indeed, which resulted from his death, that by it he redeemed his church, is altogether beyond the power of men to imitate. That he might sanctify, or that he might separate it to himself. For such I consider to be the meaning of the word sanctify. This is accomplished by the forgiveness of sins and the regeneration of the spirit. Washing it with the washing of water. Having mentioned the inward and hidden sanctification, he now adds the outward symbol by which it is visibly confirmed. As if he had said that a pledge of that sanctification is held out to us by baptism. Here it is necessary to guard against unsound interpretation, lest the wicked superstition of men, as has frequently happened, change a sacrament into an idol. When Paul says that we are washed by baptism, his meaning is that God employs it for declaring to us that we are washed, and at the same time performs what it represents. If the truth, or which is the same thing, the exhibition of the truth, were not connected with baptism. It would be improper to say that baptism is the washing of the soul. At the same time, we must beware of ascribing to the sign or to the minister what belongs to God alone. We must not imagine that washing is performed by the minister, or that water cleanses the pollutions of the soul, which nothing but the blood of Christ can accomplish. In short, we must beware of giving any portion of our confidence to the element or to man, for the true and proper use of the sacrament is to lead us directly to Christ and to place all our dependence upon Him others again suppose that too much importance is given to the sign by saying that baptism is the washing of the soul under the influence of this fear they labour exceedingly to lessen the force of the eulogium, which is here pronounced on baptism but they are manifestly wrong for in the first place the apostle does not say that it is the sign which washes but declares it to be exclusively the work of god it is god who washes and the honour of performing it cannot lawfully be taken from its author and given to the sign but there is no absurdity in saying that god employs a sign as the outward means not that the power of god is limited by the sign but this assistance is accommodated to the weakness of our capacity some are offended at this view imagining that it takes from the holy spirit a work which is peculiarly his own and which is everywhere ascribed to him in scripture but they are mistaken for god acts by the sign in such a manner that its whole efficacy depends upon his spirit nothing more is attributed to the sign than to be an inferior organ utterly useless in itself except so far as it derives its power from another source equally groundless is their fear that by this interpretation the freedom of god will be restrained the grace of god is not confined to the sign so that god may not if he pleases bestow it without the aid of the sign besides many receive the sign who are not made partakers of grace for the sign is common to all to the good and to the bad alike but the spirit is bestowed on none but the elect, and the sign, as we have said, has no efficacy without the spirit. The Greek participle, katharisas, is in the past tense, as if he had said, after having washed. But as the Latin language has no active participle in the past tense, I chose rather to disregard this and to translate it washing instead of having been washed, which would have kept out of view a matter of far greater importance, namely, that to God alone belongs the work of cleansing." In the Word. This is very far from being a superfluous addition, for if the Word is taken away, the whole power of the sacraments is gone. What else are the sacraments but seals of the Word? This single consideration will drive away superstition. How comes it that superstitious men are confounded by signs, but because their minds are not directed to the Word which would lead them to God? Certainly when we look to anything else than to the Word, there is nothing sound, nothing pure, but one absurdity springs out of another till at length the signs which were appointed by god for the salvation of men become profane and degenerate into gross idolatry the only difference therefore between the sacraments of the godly and the contrivances of unbelievers is found in the word by the word is here meant the promise which explains the value and use of the signs hence it appears that the papists do not at all observe the signs in a proper manner they boast indeed of having the word but appear to regard it as a sort of enchantment, for they mutter it in an unknown tongue, as if it were addressed to dead matter, not to men. No explanation of the mystery is made to the people, and in this respect, were there no other, the sacrament begins to be nothing more than the dead element of water. In the word is equivalent to by the word. That he might present it to himself... He declares what is the design of baptism and of our being washed. It is that we may live in a holy and unblameable manner before God. We are washed by Christ, not that we may return to our pollution, but that we may retain through our life the purity which we have once received. This is described in metaphorical language appropriate to his argument. Not having spot or wrinkle as the beauty of the wife produces love in the husband so christ adorns the church's bride with holiness as a proof of his regard this metaphor contains an allusion to marriage but he afterwards lays aside the figure and says plainly that christ has reconciled the church that it might be holy and without blemish the true beauty of the church consists in this conjugal chastity that is in holiness and purity the word present implies that the church ought to be holy not only in the view of men but in the eyes of the lord for paul says that he might present it to himself not that he might show it to others though the fruits of that hidden purity become afterwards evident in outward works pelagians were wont to quote this passage in order to prove the perfection of righteousness in this life but have been successfully answered by augustine paul does not state what has been done but for what purpose christ has cleansed his church now when a thing is said to be done that another may afterwards follow it is idle to conclude that this latter thing which ought to follow has been already done we do not deny that the holiness of the church is already begun but so long as there is daily progress there cannot be perfection so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. He that loveth his wife. An argument is now drawn from nature itself to prove that men ought to love their wives. Every man, by his very nature, loves himself, but no man can love himself without loving his wife. Therefore the man who does not love his wife is a monster. The minor proposition is proved in this manner. Marriage was appointed by God on the condition that the two should be one flesh, and that this unity may be the more sacred. He again recommends it to our notice by the consideration of Christ and his church. Such is the amount of his argument, which to a certain extent applies universally to human society. To show what man owes to man, Isaiah says, "'Hide not thyself from thine own flesh,' but this refers to our common nature between a man and his wife there is a far closer relation for they not only are united by a resemblance of nature but by the bond of marriage have become one man whoever considers seriously the design of marriage cannot but love his wife even as christ the church he proceeds to enforce the obligations of marriage by representing to us christ and his church for a more powerful example could not have been adduced the strong affection, which a husband ought to cherish towards his wife, is exemplified by Christ, and an instance of that unity which belongs to marriage is declared to exist between himself and the church. This is a remarkable passage on the mysterious intercourse which we have with Christ. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. First, this is no exaggeration, but the simple truth. Secondly, he does not simply mean that Christ is a partaker of our nature, but expresses something higher and more emphatic. For this cause. This is an exact quotation from the writings of Moses, and what does it mean? As Eve was formed out of the substance of her husband, and thus was a part of himself, so, if we are true members of Christ, we share his substance, and by this intercourse unite into one body in short paul describes our union to christ a symbol and pledge of which is given to us in the ordinance of the supper those who talk about the torture exercised on this passage to make it refer to the lord's supper while no mention is made of the supper but of marriage are egregiously mistaken while they admit that the death of christ is commemorated in the supper but not that such intercourse exists as we assert from the words of christ we quote this passage against them paul says that we are members of his flesh and of his bones do we wonder then that in the lord's supper he holds out his body to be enjoyed by us and to nourish us unto eternal life thus we prove that the only union which we maintain to be represented by the lord's supper is here declared in its truth and consequences by the apostle two subjects are exhibited together for the spiritual union between Christ and his church is so treated as to illustrate the common law of marriage, to which the quotation from Moses relates. He immediately adds that the saying is fulfilled in Christ and the church. Every opportunity which presents itself for proclaiming our obligations to Christ is readily embraced, but he adapts his illustration of them to the present subject. It is uncertain whether Moses introduces Adam as using these words, or gives them as an inference drawn by himself from the creation of man. Nor is it of much consequence which of these views be taken, for in either case we must hold it to be an announcement of the will of God, enjoining the duties which men owe to their wives. He shall leave his father and mother. As if he had said, Let him rather leave his father and mother than not cleave to his wife the marriage bond does not set aside the other duties of mankind nor are the commandments of god so inconsistent with each other that a man cannot be a good and faithful husband without ceasing to be a dutiful son it is altogether a question of degree moses draws the comparison in order to express more strongly the close and sacred union which subsists between husband and wife a son is bound by an inviolable law of nature to perform his duties towards his father, and when the obligation of a husband toward his wife are declared to be stronger, their force is the better understood. He who resolves to be a good husband will not fail to perform his filial duties, but will regard marriage as more sacred than all other ties. And they too shall be one flesh. They shall be one man, or to use a common phrase, they shall constitute one person which certainly would not hold true with regard to any other kind of relationship all depends on this that the wife was formed of the flesh and bones of her husband such is the union between us and christ who in some sort makes us partakers of his substance we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh not because like ourselves he has a human nature but because by the power of his spirit he makes us a part of his body so that from him we derive our life this is a great mystery. He concludes by expressing his astonishment at the spiritual union between Christ and the church. This is a great mystery, by which he means that no language can explain fully what it implies. It is to no purpose that men fret themselves to comprehend, by the judgment of the flesh, the manner and character of this union. For here the infinite power of the divine spirit is exerted those who refuse to admit anything on this subject beyond what their own capacity can reach act an exceedingly foolish part we tell them that the flesh and blood of christ are exhibited to us in the lord's supper explain to us the manner they reply or you will not convince us for my own part i am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery and am not ashamed to join paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration how much more satisfactory would this be than to follow my carnal judgment in undervaluing what Paul declares to be a deep mystery reason itself teaches how we ought to act in such matters for whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension let us therefore labour more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. We cannot avoid admiring the acuteness of the Papists, who conclude from the word mystery that marriage is one of the seven sacraments, as if they had the power of changing water into wine. They enumerate seven sacraments, while Christ has instituted no more than two, and to prove that matrimony is one of the seven, they produce this passage. On what ground? Because the Vulgate has adopted the word sacrament as a translation of the word mystery, which the Apostle uses. As if a sacrament did not frequently among Latin writers denote mystery, or as if mystery had not been the word employed by Paul in the same epistle when speaking of the calling of the Gentiles. But the present question is, has marriage been appointed as a sacred symbol of the grace of God to declare and represent to us something spiritual, such as baptism or the Lord's Supper? They have no ground for such an assertion unless it be that they have been deceived by the doubtful signification of a Latin word, or rather by their ignorance of the Greek language. If the simple fact had been observed that the word used by Paul is mystery, no mistake would ever have occurred. We see then the hammer and anvil with which they fabricated this sacrament but they have given another proof for their indolence in not attending to the correction which is immediately added, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He intended to give express warning that no man should understand him as speaking of marriage, so that his meaning is more fully expressed than if he had uttered the former sentiment without any exception. The great mystery is that Christ breathes into the church his own life and power but who would discover here anything like a sacrament this blunder arose from the grossest ignorance nevertheless let every one having digressed a little from this subject though the very digression aided his design he adopts the method usually followed in short precepts by giving a brief summary of duties husbands are required to love their wives and wives to fear their husbands understanding by fear that reverence which will lead them to be submissive where reverence does not exist, there will be no willing subjection. End of section 11